What is going on, everybody? Welcome back to episode 9, I believe, of Gilbo's Fight Show. Thank you for being here. Thank you for tuning in. We've got, I mean, we've got another big, fat episode today. So, so strap in. We gotta, we gotta discuss the UFC 282. Uh, that's, that's gonna take up a majority of the time, I'm sure. Then we have to talk about Bellator 289. And then we gotta look ahead a little bit. We'll take a look at... Uh, the UFC's final card of the year this coming Saturday at on the back end of the show. But let's be honest, we got to talk about what went down this past Saturday at UFC 282. I have not been, I have not left a card feeling so speechless in, in quite a while. I think, you know, you can be speechless after a card for a lot of different reasons. I remember after uh, 270... Five, I believe it was 275, which was uh, Yeary versus Glover. Um, after that card, I was, like, blown away, but not at the same, like, not the same kind of blown away. That was because of how incredible the entire card went and how incredibly it ended. This one, I had not been so just dumbfounded at the end of a card. I don't know if it's ever actually happened before, like, this bad. It was incredible. It was insane. So what on God's green earth happened at UFC 282? It was all going so well. So smoothly. It was working out to be an incredible pay-per-view send-off. Like, just an incredible way for the UFC to cap off their 2022, which has been a weird year. But it was the final pay-per-view card was going so well. I think we had 10 finishes in as many fights. Maybe 9, but regardless, it all comes crashing down and gets all weird in just the last 40 minutes of schedule action. The last two fights. And of course, we're going to be talking about judging quite a bit um, on the show today. So I want to give this sort of disclaimer just for context. I tend to think I'm able to score fights relatively effectively... I am obviously not always right, and there is naturally a, a subjectivity to MMA scoring, which is probably an issue, and we'll get into that later. I've read the actual scoring criteria, like I've read the sheet that um, lays out exactly what the scoring criteria is, and I listen to people like Aaron Bronstetter and Sean Sheehan uh, talk about how it is supposed to be applied. And so I think I'm starting to get a decent grasp of what exactly they're actually looking at. And I don't actually, I often don't agree with how you're supposed to score these fights, but I do think I understand how it works, even if I think it's kind of stupid sometimes. That being said, let's start off with the main event. Jan Blahovich and Magomed Ankalaev go the distance for the vacant light heavyweight title, at the end of the fight, the consensus seemed to be that Magomed Ankalaev would get his hand raised. Uh, John Anik even John Anik even said something to the degree of, like, in all likelihood, Russia will have another UFC champion like at the end of the fight. Um, and he doesn't do that very often. He usually, if the fight if the fight's even like relatively close, he usually uh, doesn't say something like that. But it seemed to be such a foregone conclusion. But as you likely now know, the scorecards read 48-47 Jan, 
48-46 Ankalaev, and 47-47 for a split draw. Just the outcome everybody was looking for. The belt remains vacant. There's still no light heavyweight champion because Yuri vacated. There was no winner in this fight. And now, as mentioned by Dana in the uh, post-fight press conference and was later confirmed, it will be Glover Teixeira versus Jamal Hill again for the vacant light heavyweight title in just about a month in Rio at UFC 283. So that's fun. I mean, that's a great, that's a, that's a fine fight. I mean, that'll be super, I mean, that's a super interesting fight. I mean, no, and nobody is mad at seeing Glover um, in, you know, a spot that he deserves. But just such a weird situation. And now, going back to this fight itself, the Jan versus Ankalaya fight, we have to start with, well, we'll start with the fight, but obviously, you know, it, the story is the judging because of how the scorecard ended up. And obviously, we'll circle back to the judging conversation again when we get to the next fight. But for context, I scored the main event on the first time watching it, 49-46 for Ankalaev. And now, if we go round by round, round one was pretty close. It was mostly just them, you know, the feeling out process that happens quite a bit. There wasn't a ton of action it was a relatively close round. And then Jan had a great round two where he did a, a lot of damage to Ankalaev's right leg. Like through round two and then into round three, it seemed like it seemed like we were going to see a leg kick TKO from Jan. I mean, he was killing Ankalaev with those calf kicks, um, especially in the second round. And then in the third round, he did some damage to Ankalaev's other leg after he had switched stances. At the time I was watching it, I, I didn't see... I saw some people... Uh, also scored at 49-46. Um, I just, for some reason, I still felt like Ankalaev had won the third round. Uh, just because he was outstriking him everywhere else. And he seemed, and Ankalaev kind of came on near the end of the round as well. Um, and I'm not, I'm not a stickler on that. If you get, I mean, round three was also very close. You could absolutely give that to Jan because he did have Ankalaev's leg hurt pretty bad at one point. For some reason in the moment, I just thought Ankalaev had won it. And so that's not really, a, that's, that's not really the consequential round here. Um, round four was a really, really great adjustment for Ankalaev. He was he was able to start utilizing his wrestling. He clearly wins the round, and then round five was more of the same, of course. Um, and Ankalaev really poured it on in round five, with two of the judges giving him a ten eight in round five. I didn't think it quite constituted a ten eight, um, but I mean a super clear round for Ankalaev. I rewatched the fight on Sunday, and I still think the right scorecard was either 48-47 Ankalaev or 49-46 Ankalaev. That being said, I see why they were able to get get to a 48-47 to decision for Jan. I think that was Mike Bell's scorecard, and I think Bell is one of, I think Bell's one of the better judges out there, probably. Um, he's relatively consistent. He seems to mo- most of the time be on the right side of it. Um, but you could definitely make a case where you could see it 48-47 Jan. The first round was relatively close. Just not a ton happened. And then round two, round three, you could totally score for Jan. That's three rounds. If you don't give Ankalaev a 10-8 in the fifth, then that's 48-47 Jan. And then if you make that case, then you have to accept 47-47 as also a passable scorecard because if you can argue that Jan won round one, then you have to be able to argue that Ankalaev had a 10-8 in round round five so therein kind of lies the issue with this if you watch you watch the fight as a whole like as one if you just yeah if you 
take the fight as a whole, it seems incredibly clear that Magomed Akhalaev had won that fight. But when you break it down round by round, and you just go by how you could score each round, then it gets all muddy, because you have rounds that are kind of close, and you have like dominant rounds, and there's back and forth rounds. And it, like, it's, it's enough to drive you crazy, even if you try to have a grasp on how this sport is supposed to be scored. So when you have a fight like this where you can use the scoring criteria as it's written to make a case that either fighter won or that neither of them won, that has to be indicative of a problem with the scoring criteria. Or at least the way the fight, like, either the criteria or the system. One of those two. And obviously there's been zero, zero movement, or like, like zero give in any sort of reform or any, uh, like... There has been nothing done with this scoring system, for sure. They have tried to adjust the criteria so they can get it as, you know, accurate and um, readable. I, I mean, just so they can try to get it as right as possible, but nothing is working. They have tried to adjust the criteria a couple of times. It doesn't really work. I think there has to be an adjustment with the system, but that has never been remotely close to happening. So I guess we'll see. And by system, I mean the 10-9 must system. Aaron Brownstetter on Twitter just today was talking about how he is a big proponent of the uh, half-point system, where instead of it going 10-9, 10-8, you would have, you know, like the 10-10, which is supposed to be incredibly rare, like almost never used. And then you would have 10 to 9.5, and, and then 10.9, and then 10.8.5, and then 10.8, and so on. I like that a lot, just because it gives you, there is just a little bit more room. Because you have, you could you have, you have a round that is incredibly, incredibly close. You could score that a 10 to 9.5 rather than a 10.9. Or I should say, as the system stands now, you could have a round that somebody wins by the narrowest of margins, that's a 10.9. Or you could have around that's relatively pretty dominant also a 10-9 so this just gives a little bit more instead of you know a very 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 close round could be a 10 to nine and a half and a round that is somewhat dominant you know uh you know Amagomed Akalaya versus Jan Blahovich fifth round rather than that being a 10 rather than there having to be a debate whether that's a 10-9 or 10-8 that could just be a 10 to eight and a half and I feel like most people probably agree with that so I like that idea. We'll see. If, I mean, the likelihood is that that will there will be no adjustment to the system because the athletic commissions don't care. The, the athletic commissions are so stubborn. I don't think there's a very high chance that anything actually happens with it. And now back to the the, the situation at hand. Yeah, there is still no light heavyweight champion. Glover Teixeira versus Jamal Hill will be in Rio in January at UFC 283 for the vacant title again. And I, I mean, I understand why they why they scheduled that fight right away. <clears throat> I feel bad for Anthony Smith, but I mean, I, I do get it with how convoluted light heavyweight is right now in the UFC. Um, but you do you have to feel for Ankalaev because he really should have got his hand raised there. I think most people are in agreement on that. And I thought it was weird how mad Dana seemed at the post-fight press conference afterwards. Like... He was like he said the fight was terrible. He started zoning out in the third round because it was so horrible and boring. That doesn't really make any sense to me. Like, was it was it fight of the year? No, but 
I don't know, was it that was that fight that much worse than Nate Diaz versus Tony Ferguson? I also don't think so. I thought that fight was pretty entertaining. Like second and third rounds were pretty dramatic where it was like, is Uncle Ive gonna be able to survive this? And then he made a then he made fantastic adjustments and came back and totally shut Jan down in the fourth and fifth. Yeah, and now Dana's all mad, kind of at Ankalaya for some reason. I mean, so so who even knows what'll happen with him and his future? Like now, his road back to a shot at the title, which he probably should have right now, could be significantly tougher and just roundabout. Who knows? And in terms of like the fallout. This is unique because it's essentially like this fight just didn't happen. Like this, this, it was before the light heavyweight division. This fight came to about zero consequence at all, other than the fact that Ankalaev is now outside of the conversation for the immediate future. Nothing, he, nothing was accomplished here. Zero. So of course, the light heavyweight division will be a a common topic of conversation uh, more and more in the near future because. Hopefully we're because we you know we still need answers and hopefully they're coming but um, definitely a disappointing end to the card and um, really for of end of the year for the UFC pay per view wise but now we do have to get into what was in reality a much bigger deal even though the stakes were so so much less Patty Pimblett somehow some way gets his hand raised against Jared Gordon by unanimous decision. 2928 times 3. Okay. So I'm going to do my best to try to not make this whole like segment here in to not make it an anti Patty Pimlet rant. And I cannot promise that it won't seem like that, but I do promise my goal is to be fair. I separate my issues with the fight to my issues with him like personally. Like nothing no analysis on the fight or his position in the UFC or the lightweight division is any take on him personally, even though I don't think he's a fantastic person. Um, but that's not unique either. There's a lot of fighters that aren't great people. But I just want to really, I really just want to talk about the fight and the issues with the fight. And yeah, we'll get into it. The fight. The word robbery is obviously incredibly overused in MMA. Anytime there is a fight that is remotely close, you have fans of the loser tend to call robbery. I think one of the ways you can infer who actually has a brain when they're talking about fights is how quick they are to call a fi- call a close fight a robbery. You have people call robbery for every remotely close fight. And I think people that are smart and people that intelligently speak about MMA are always slow to use the word robbery. I can only think of two recently that uh, I have thought were robberies, and one of them I, I, I changed my mind. The most recent one, obviously, the immediate aftermath of the O'Malley versus Jan fight, there were a lot of people calling robbery, including me. Um, but I think after cooling down from that moment and going back and rewatching the fight for a lot of people, you were able to see, like, oh, that was just a very, very close fight. And... Yeah, it was just a close fight. And after rewatching the the O'Malley-Yan fight, I don't know how you could call that a robbery. That was... I think most people went back and realized this was definitely not a robbery, O'Malley versus Yan. Now, the difference with this fight is that upon rewatch, I saw it almost exactly the same way. The 29-28 to 28 Gordon is probably the worst scorecard you, you should realistically have. And... 
it was closer to 30-27 Gordon than it was 29-28 Patty. To me, this fight is a lot more reminiscent of Calvin Cater versus Josh Emmett. Because, and hear me out through this, there is there is a way you could score that fight 29 to 28 Patty. That you could argue. Now, it would not be an argument that I agree with. But, you can make the case that Patty edged out rounds 2 and 3. You could claim that. Because they were just both kind of weird rounds. Unfortunately... In this fight, two of the judges gave Patty round one. And that's why this fight's a robbery. That alone makes this fight a robbery. The clearest round of the entire fight was round one for Jared Gordon. Arguably, the only clear round was round one for Jared Gordon. And you can go into the numbers like significant strikes were similar, but Jared Gordon landed way more consistently and with way higher amplitude. Like the left hand of Jared Gordon that he was landing over and over in the first round was the highest amplitude and the most effective strike landed in that entire fight. And it landed a lot. And then round two and round three were weird. I still, I mean, I would probably still score both of them for Jared Gordon. Gun to my head, like, you, I have to pick a winner for each of those two rounds, I'm gonna pick Jared Gordon and probably both of them. But I get that they were weird and weird things happen, like, in this sport, especially with judging. But this is, to me, this is similar to the Calvin Cater versus Josh Emmett scorecard because in that fight, you there's a scorecard you could have where Emmett wins that fight. And I wouldn't have really been able to argue that because I want to say it was 1-2-3 Emmett. You could make, or no, <clears throat> I forget. I, I forget what how exactly it worked out. But I, there, was, there was a way you could score that fight for Josh Emmett that I wouldn't have been mad at. But the problem was that Cater only lost because one of the judges gave round four to Josh Emmett. Which is insane, because Cater clearly won round four. He had Emmett hurt, and I don't need to go off on this fight again. But to me, that fight's a robbery because Cater only lost because one of the judges gave Emmett a round that he clearly won. The judges, One of the judges gave Emmett a round that Cater clearly won. So to me, that, that makes that a robbery because that, he was robbed of that round, and that would have won him the fight. In this fight, Jared Gordon only lost because two judges gave round one to Patty. If those two judges would have given the right guy that round, if they would have given Jared Gordon the round that he rightfully should have won, he wins that fight. He still wins by split decision. I honestly expected it to be a split decision. When they said unanimous decision, I was like, there's no chance. I was like, oh, well, that's got to be Gordon. There's no chance that not a single person saw that fight for Jared Gordon. So that is, to me, that is what constitutes this as a robbery. The fact that that he, that Jared Gordon lost because he was not awarded round one—that's insane to me. Jared Gordon should have gotten his hand raised. He was robbed of the biggest win of his career, and I still think he'll get the rub from this fight. Hopefully, um, and well, he'll get, the, and he's definitely getting the rub from the fans. Like, I think people are appreciating him, um, and I hope the UFC gives him another big fight next because he absolutely deserves it. Um, the problem is that even you know. Regardless of the fact that Jared Gordon won, should have won the fight, even if he had gotten his hand raised, the story would still be Patty. And so now we have to continue to talk about Patty in the aftermath because that's still the story, even though Jared Gordon outfought him. So let's keep talking about Patty because that's the story here. Patty Pimla getting on the mic with Joe Rogan after that fight and then, and then later doubling down in the post-fight presser talking about how the fight wasn't close and he knew he was winning the whole time and he couldn't believe people thought that he lost the fight. 
That should concern you if you're a Patty Pimblett fan. Even if you had him winning because you're a total homer, it should still concern you that he was so confident that he was winning that fight because like that that just to me indicates a, a level of like weird blind delusion. I don't know. And to be fair, Jared Gordon shouldn't have been super confident he was winning that fight either. I want that to be clear too. Jared Gordon shouldn't have been super, super confident that he was up on the scorecards going into the third. Like, it was a close fight. It was a close fight. I'm not saying that it that Jared Gordon won clearly or whatever. Like, it was a close fight. You should be able to realize that. Like you like that should be you should have that level of awareness to know that that was not a dominant performance by any stretch of the imagination. And it's not that he thought he won. Like, that, that's whatever. You can... A lot of guys think they won fights that they clearly lost. But he's not even aware the fight was close. Like, that's an issue. Like, he does he think that is his skill set and is his level of fighting right now is, like, that much higher than Jared Gordon's? Because it isn't. And it might be lower. I mean, we just saw that was an incredibly competitive fight. Like... You could argue those guys are the exact same skill level. And he doesn't look like a guy, like, here's the other issue with Patty. That's about as good as he's going to get. What we saw on Saturday, that's, he's he's pretty much a finished product at this point. He has 23 pro fights. He's been fighting since 2012. I don't think you're going to get a lot of development from him over the next however many years he keeps fighting. Like, I don't know if there's going to be jumps in his game and his skill set. But I think you've, you, I think he's pretty much a baked cake. But he still fights like he's super green and raw. Like you see a lot of like talent. Like you see a lot of talented guys doing their first ten or so pro fights. That's like how he's fighting, and that should also concern you if you're a Patty Pimblet fan. Do you think the fight, the, the fight that he just fought, like is that remotely good enough to compete at the highest level of the lightweight division? No, not even close. Like this isn't even the same as Sean O'Malley, who obviously was not fighting the strongest competition through the first stage of his UFC career, but. He was like, she was showing this development and he was steamrolling all of these guys that he was set up to beat. Like he had the Cheeto fight, but now we know how good Cheeto is. Other than that, all these guys that he was set up to beat, he systematic, like he steamrolled. Like none of those fights were close until he got to the, you know, the Munoz fight was a weird eye poke and then the Jan fight. And this is sure as hell not Conor McGregor, who Patty is always getting compared to, like... Patty saying he's the new cash cow. He's the he's the new biggest star. I mean, I don't know. Maybe. Well, nobody's the biggest star in in the UFC until Conor McGregor is officially retired. But if you really want to compare Patty Pilma to Conor McGregor, here's here's a comparison for you. And I'm not the first person to do this or look at the look at it through this lens. But this was Patty Pimlet's fourth UFC fight. We just saw what happened in that fight. He was gifted a decision against approximately the 30th ranked lightweight in the world, Jared Gordon. That's not a slight to Gordon. He's a very good fighter. He's That's where he's at right now. He's 30th or so in the world, you know, high 20s ranked at lightweight. That's still a very good fighter because you're at lightweight, which is the best division. Do you guys remember who Conor McGregor fought in his fourth UFC fight? It was the number five ranked featherweight in the world at the time. Dustin Poirier, and McGregor knocked him out in 106 seconds. Following Connor's fourth fight, he was fully, fully ready for a shot at the title. 
and I, you know he had to go steamroll Dennis Seaver first, but he was clearly that level at that point. Right now, Garam Kutaladze or Kutaladze is ranked 22nd at lightweight. Is there anybody on earth that think Patty would win that fight with with Garam? Do you, does anybody out there think Patty has anything for Garam Kutaladze? That's that's the number twenty. That's the number twenty-two ranked guy. I think he has a, a fight schedule, but he's coming off a loss. That fight wouldn't be remotely close. Following this last fight for Petty, I don't. I'm not sure he'll ever even be like a mainstay in the lightweight rankings. He might get like one cycle in the rankings. Like he might win a fight, get in the rankings, fight a ranked opponent, and then he'd get knocked out. Like he could sneak in there, but like, are you going to tell me you think he has a, a shot in hell at beating a Dan Hooker? Or a, a Demir Ismagulov, a Jalen Turner. Those guys are like 10 to 15-ish. Dan Hooker might still be right out of the rankings, but I don't really count Tony Ferguson, so I slide Dan in there. Yeah, I mean, 14 and 15 are Connor and Tony. I would just honestly slide Tony out of there. I cannot believe he's still ranked. Yeah, instead of, instead of those guys, you know, Dan Hooker and... Dan Hooker and Grant Dawson. Yeah. Call them 14 and 15. That's probably how it should be. There is not a... Man, I I don't know if there's a human being on this planet outside of Patty Pillman that thinks that he could beat Dan Hooker, Grant Dawson, Demir Ismagulov, Jalen Turner, Armand Sarukian. Like, you could keep going, but it doesn't get much better. And then the other problem with that... Oh, Dan Hooker's ranked 11th. Oops, my bad. Forget I said anything. Not anything, but forget I... Whatever. The other issue is it is not like he's super young. He is young. He's 27. But... You look at lightweight, Grant Dawson's 28. Jalen Turner is 27. Armand Sarukian is 26. Rafael Faziv is 29. Islam is only 31. So it's not like he can sit here and like outlast this coming era at lightweight because he's late to the party. And he's not developed enough to beat any of these guys, I don't think. Like not, I don't think any of those fights are competitive. And I think there's guys that are outside of the rankings that are... I think there's guys that are also going to struggle to get into the rankings at lightweight that also steamroll Patty Pimplett. And he'll... I mean, he'll have every opportunity to prove me wrong. And this is... I mean, what I'm saying right now is is pretty much being echoed throughout a lot of MMA media and MMA coverage. He'll have the opportunity to prove everybody wrong. But I, I just think there's there's a group of fighters, not just a couple. Like, there is, like, seven, eight, nine guys of this generation, the same generation of fighters that Patty Pimm was in that are at his weight class that are levels better than him. Like, levels better than him and still and still getting better. Like, Jalen Turner looks better every time he steps in the octagon. He just steamrolled Brad Riddell. I'm pretty sure Brad Riddell would beat Patty Pimblett. After watching the Jared Gordon fight, are you kidding me? My like my 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 bold prediction. This isn't even bold. Like this, my prediction for like the the for Patty Pimblett's UFC career. By the time Patty retires, by the time Patty is done fighting, Darren Till will still be the most accomplished fighter to ever come out of Liverpool, in the UFC at least. I don't know a ton about Liverpool fighters, but to my knowledge, Darren Till. Uh, right now would be the top in terms of accomplishments for fighting for a UFC belt. Um, I don't think Patty ever sniffs that. Unless he is gifted something. Like, gifted worse than this decision. Like, straight from not being ranked to title shot or something. Alright, we're done with this. Obviously, I spent a lot of time talking about that, but, like, I mean, objectively, that's the biggest story right now. And, um... 
obviously I've got stuff to say about it, but we've got actual highlights to focus on um, of what was an incredible card before we got to the co-main. Um, the rest of the card was fantastic. Ilya Topuria, easily the biggest winner of the night. That dude, scary, scary, scary good. It's incredible that he's going to be at Featherweight because, I mean, he's as well-rounded as anybody. Like, for the last couple of years, I've thought that uh, Alexander Volkanovsky was the most well-rounded fighter by far. Like, there's nobody that mixes the, mixes every aspect of the game in like Alex Volkanovsky. He is so good. But man, Ilya Topuria is well-rounded. <laughs> and he is, like, scary well-rounded. He's got... The knockout power on his feet. He throws strikes like they're trying to kill you. And then you go to the ground with him, and he's got submission skills. I was pretty impressed by Bryce Mitchell, like, actually able to get him to the ground a couple times. But it, it didn't, you know, you know, there was no, it didn't help help much at all. He did, wasn't able to do much. And then eventually they scramble, and Topuri is able to catch that arm triangle. That was wicked tight right away. I Like, I feel like if you know... Posi- grappling positioning at all as soon as <clears throat> as soon as Topuria had that he kind of caught the head and arm while they were against the fence I was like that's it I was watching with my my parents and the, I just was like that's tight and about four seconds later it was over he is so good like submission skills knockout power takedown defense is fantastic I wouldn't take him to beat Volkanovski right now, but I mean, if you're looking at somebody, because you're looking at the featherweight division and you kind of have to say, who on earth is going to beat Volkanovski in here? You kind of have to look towards a guy like Topuria, who's still a couple fights away, but like that could be the guy that you're looking at. Like this could be the biggest fight in the featherweight division in, you know, a year's time. And I thought Bryce Mitchell gave a pretty good fight. Like I thought he went in, I know he said he had the flu or whatever, but I thought he, he looked like he was game. He was going in, in there to win that fight. But, oof, that is a scary man. A scary, scary man, Ilya Topuria. Now he's in the top 10. The question is, who's he fight next? He called out, he called out Ortega, which is a, a fine fight. I don't know what his timeline is for getting back in the cage. I wouldn't mind uh, Topuria versus maybe the loser of uh, Yair versus Emmett. I like that fight. But get him, get him something big, because he's ready for it. He is a, an animal man. And another thing that, you know, not in a, not an original take by me, but if I'm Patty Pimblett or his team, I am not touching Ilya Topuria with a 20-foot pole. If I'm anybody on his, if I'm, if I'm his team, I'm not touching anybody in the lightweight rankings with a 20-foot pole. We're past that. I'm not still talking about that. We'll move on. Ilya Topuria, fantastic performance. He has to get a big fight next. That was a big fight. He should get a bigger fight next. Santiago Ponzinibbio with the comeback victory. I thought, man, Alex Morono looked so good through that fight. He was doing so well. And Ponzinibbio just caught him with that overhand right, which made his face, like, seize up. That was super weird. He, like, his face, like, cramped up into, like, a snarl when he got hit. And then... I mean, he just came back with the exact same shot, hit him again, knocked him down, and then I, I think Herzog was smart to jump in and stop it right about there. That was not going to get any better. But, I mean, fantastic performance by, or fantastic comeback by Ponzinibbio in a fight that he needed to win, I think. He needed that win pretty bad. Uh, and, you know, no, you know, Morono doesn't really 
lose anything here. He stepped up on short notice, very short notice, had a fantastic performance. I mean, he looked really, really good. Just got caught by a guy with a lot of power. Tough return for um, for Darren Till. Loses to Drickus Duplessis by third round submission in a in what I thought was a pretty good fight. I think that got fight of the night, which I think is fair because it's not. I guess yeah, yeah. I think that's a, that's a good call for fight of the night. It's not like um, any of the other finishes were overly competitive. I think the the only other one you probably could have considered is the Ponzinibbio versus Morono one, but uh, yeah, the the beginning of that fight was weird because you had. Uh, DDP with Till up against the cage, just kind of throwing shots. And the ref was getting real, like, touchy, like, real, like, antsy, thinking about stopping it. And I was like, what? Like, don't stop it, first of all. But then, after a while, I was getting irritated with Till. I was like, he was being so patient trying to get out of this position that he almost got the fight ended. And, you know, defend yourself. Use some of the, like, you have to have been working on cage wrestling. I mean, and... Don't even get me started on his takedown defense later in the fight. Like, Drickus Duplessis is not a wrestler. He was not shooting good takedowns. And Darren Till had zero takedown defense. Like, none. But Darren Till had a great second round. He almost had him... There were times it looked like he almost had him out of there. And it looked like... And there were times that it looked like if he just had a big push, he would have got him out of there. And then, of course, comes back doesn't really have, you know, doesn't really do much in the third round, ends up kind of rolling over and getting submitted. It was just a weird-looking fight. Um, I think I think Till talked in an interview afterwards about how he he asked to, we said he wants to take some time off, which is really tough when you were already coming off 15 months off. I guess, I guess we'll see what time off means, but he said he just wasn't able to like, get into that, like, get to that, that next level which is, is kind of what it looked like, in all honesty. Like, it looks like he couldn't bridge the gap into, like, having that killer instinct, which is really tough. That's something you kind of need, I think. I'm assuming in the cage that'd be pretty helpful. But, I mean, you can see it. I've seen it in wrestling a lot where you have a guy out there that's just kind of going through the motions. He's just kind of, I don't know, a lot of people call it sleepwalking. Like, they just, like, can't get there. They, like... No, they they know what they're trying to tell their body to do, but it just won't quite work. Um, and that's kind of what it looked like for Till. And I think it, I think uh, it sounded like he might have torn his his ACL and his left knee. Like, oh, again, I don't know if he that's I don't know if he's done that before. I know he's just been hurt so many times. I hope that isn't what happened. But oh man, really tough spot for Till to be in. He's not even thirty. Like, yeah, I'm not really sure where he goes from here. Um. In all honesty, it seems like kind of a, a spot where the UFC could could do a little pull, kind of the uh, the Rumble Johnson card, rest in peace. But uh, where you know Rumble Johnson had all those issues with his weight, um, and they basically were like, "All right, we're cutting you, and you're we hope to see you again, but you got to go figure your shit out." And then when you when you've got to figure it out, come back. And he went and figured his shit out. He came back, and he was the man. I feel like maybe that's what has to happen for Darren Till. Um, I wish nothing but the best for Darren Till. I, I, you know, he seems like a very likable guy. This fight week, he seemed to really be in a good spot mentally. He seemed focused. He seemed centered. He seemed calm, um, which he loved to see. But yeah, hope to hope that he that he will he'll be, he does well and like hopefully he is able to turn this into a successful career because he had you know he was in such a in an incredible spot early. Um, but we'll see how it all works out for him. Speaking of being in an incredible spot early, Raul Rosas Jr., wow. 
he proved that he was UFC level because I was questioning that. I'm not going to lie. I was, I was not sure he was UFC level, and this was the perfect test because Jay Perrin is maybe the worst bantamweight in the UFC. But Raul Rosas Jr. steamrolled Jay Perrin, so he proves that he is on the level of UFC bantamweights. I mean, yeah, it wasn't really even a fight. He steamrolled him, took him down, took his back, submitted him. I mean, it was really impressive, really good good job. Uh, people were saying that he has... The, 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 he's got like good mic skills I vehemently disagree I think his skills on the mic are horrible but he's 18 he's allowed to sound like a moron and I just every time somebody says hey Dana 50 G's baby I want to crawl I want to like pull a roly poly shell out of my back and curl into a little like roly poly ball like the little bugs I want to curl into a little ball like that and just roll off a cliff I hate when people do that. It is so annoying. But he, him saying that he wants to buy his mom a minivan to drive him to the PI, that was funny. I'll give him that one. That being said, then he went on the MMA hour yesterday and talked about uh, how he thinks that he would submit or knock out Aljo for the bell right now. That is just simply not true. Like, he clearly showed that he's on the level of a UFC fighter, but like he is, he is still green. He is green and like raw talent in the way that's good because he's 18 years old he can develop this now over the next six seven eight years like he that should not happen they should do an extended sean o'malley with this guy like he should only fight cans he should only fight cans until he's 22 he said he wants to be ufc champ by 20 don't do that give him people that suck at least until he's like 21, let him polish his skill set. Let him develop a very well-rounded game that he, where he doesn't make mistakes and he stays in position. And then by the time you're 21, then you can get big fights because your name will be big. You can jump into a, a big ranked fight. You can, you might be, you can fight cans and be two, two fights away from a title. You know, we've seen it with Sean O'Malley. Like, you could still be the youngest champ in, in UFC history, but maybe just don't crank it up that high till you're, you know, till you've developed for another couple of years. Like, develop your game, dude. Because if you jump into it too quickly, he's going to get found out. He's going to lose. He's going to lose. If you jump to, like, he's not on the same level as some of these UFC bantamweights. He just isn't. If you jump too high too quick, he'll lose. So I hope... I hope they do it the right way and they build him slowly because you have time. Even if he wants to be the youngest champ in the UFC, he has five years. If he wants to be the youngest champ in UFC history, he has five years. Give him some time. But that being said, he is an incredibly impressive performance. I wasn't sure he was going to be able to handle this, and he clearly could. He's clearly on the level. He's clearly in the right spot. Like, if he was fighting on regional promotions, it wouldn't even be... There's no point to that. He's clearly good enough to be fighting in the UFC. So this is where he should be. But I just hope they do this the right way. Yeah, and then, you know, other than that, you know, Jarzina Rosenstrike steamrolled Chris Dawkins in about 23 seconds, I think it was. Edmund Shabazian with a great rebound win. Uh, he looked very good. Chris Curtis bounces back. Loved to see that. I was right about that when I was wondering why on earth he was an underdog. Knocks out Joaquin Buckley. Really, really impressive. And, I mean, Billy Q, Billy Quarantillo... Absolutely melted Alexander Hernandez. That was super, super impressive because Hernandez looked great in that first round. And then, and I mean, the second round, Billy Q just didn't go 
not that he didn't go away. He obviously wasn't going to go away, but like he, the way that he, he just kept the pressure going. And Alexander Hernandez went from 100 to zero real quick. Like he melted incredibly quickly. Um, but awesome performance from Billy Q. Great card up until you got to the co-main. And yeah, that was good. I'm glad I did that at the end because after all of the, after all of the main co-main stuff, I got to talk, you know, getting to talk about all the other things on the card really reminded me just how good it was and how much fun that was to watch. So I'm glad I did that because now I feel a lot better. Now, the other big card of the weekend, Bellator 289 was on Friday. It was an awesome weekend for me personally. It was one of the, one of the, I haven't gotten a weekend where I've been able to watch like every single fight in a while. That's not a bad thing either. It means I have other stuff going on, but it was nice to be able to like have nothing on Friday and I got to watch all the fights. And then I'm, I got, I got back from a wrestling tournament on Saturday and I got to watch all the fights. But Bellator 289, tough night for the NCAA wrestlers. Cannot lie. Um, luckily for us, there were, the main event had two of them, so one of them got the win. That was Rafian Stotts. He defeated Danny Sabatello by split decision, which actually kicked off the horrible weekend for judging. Not because the decision was wrong. The decision was correct. The problem was Danny Sa- or Rafian Stotts won the split decision 48-47 by two. The dissenting scorecard was 50-45 to for Danny Sabatello. Asinine. Ridiculous. I don't even have to explain how a 50-45 to 45 dissenting scorecard on a, on a split decision is insane. Absurd. And it's bad enough when it happens in a three-round fight and it's 30-27 dissenting scorecard. But a 50-45 to 45 is a, such a different level. Five rounds? Insane scorecard. I'm not convinced Doug Crosby was watching that fight. Like, I feel like going into that fight, he just filled it out. He was just, he's like, I know this. He just filled the whole thing out beforehand and then just you know, sat on his phone the rest of the fight or whatever. 48-47 slots was the right scorecard. Uh, I think Sabatello won rounds one and four, Stotts one, two, three, five. And I actually don't think you could call it a robbery if Sabatello had got the decision, if he'd got a split decision like 48-47. I think you could argue that. Like, I don't think you'd call that a robbery because some of those rounds are really close and Sabatello had a lot of control time, which I know is not how they score fights anymore based on control time, but... Some of those rounds were just close and like kind of weird to score. So like, I think if Sabatello had won, I don't think you could call it a robbery. And I saw a lot of people saying they were like disappointed in how the fight turned out. It was, you know, kind of boring. They thought it was lackluster. I thought it was great. That being said, there was a whole lot of wrestling. Like it was, it it, it was just a lot of American folk style wrestling exchanges. So of course, I enjoyed that. I thought it was great. Um, but Stotts looked great. Did a great job adjusting to Sabatello's. Uh, uh, wrestling. I mean, Sabatello proved that he could take him down. Like his wrestling is as good as it gets. He took Stotts down a number of times. Stotts took Sabatello down as well. Um, but Stotts just, you know, he he was winning the exchanges on the feet for the most part. And Sabatello wasn't wasn't really doing anything on top when he would get the takedowns, which is I think ultimately why he didn't win the rounds. I think if he had actually utilized some ground and pound or attacked with some level of submissions. There's a chance he could have won the fight 50-45 because I think he got a takedown in almost every round. So, um, great fight. I bet they'll fight again at some point because I, th- I think Danny Sabatello probably gets a lot better from this and ends up steamrolling just about everybody else, except maybe we'll stick with the Bantamweight Grand Prix here. Patchy Mix, man, looked incredible. He submits Magomed, Magomedov in the second round with an incredible guillotine. He looked fantastic, man. 
and I think pretty highly of Magomedov. And I mean, Mix won every minute of the fight for as long as it lasted. Everywhere that it went. Patchy Mix's striking looked great. His jab was on point. He nearly had the guillotine once in the first round. He did the exact same thing. He kind of... Magomed took him down. He was kind of stubborn with the guillotine. He used a hook sweep to kick him over and get top position. And, uh, and you know, somehow Magomed did the exact same thing in the second round. This time, Patchy latched onto that guillotine. Same thing, hook sweep. Ended up in top position. Kind of fell off to the side. But then he puts Magomed Magomedov to sleep. And, I mean, man, Patchy Mix looked really good. Going into this final, like, finale... I mean, it's an awesome, awesome Bantamweight Grand Prix finale between Stotts and Patchy Mix. For the Grand Prix Championship and the interim title, I mean, what an awesome fight. Both dudes are on fire. And they're, I mean, it's super dynamic. There's going to be tons of action. And they both have, like, really, really good fight IQ. I think you saw that from Stotts and the adjustments he was able to make to beat Danny Sabatello in a lot of those positions. And then you definitely saw it in the Patchy Mix fight where he was more than happy to keep that fight standing. Because he was beating him. He was beating Magomedov in in the stand-up. And then, I mean, just the way he was able to navigate those takedowns from Magomedov just right into his own offense. That's a whole other kind of shot defense, you know? Like, it doesn't have to be, like, sp- sprawling fight. Because you get a good wrestler, especially in MMA. Most... Most like strikers trying to sprawl out a wrestler isn't going to work incredibly well because wrestlers are because you got to be able to chain wrestle because you know a wrestler can go from one thing to the next to the next to the next. When you can just threaten a submission, that is a whole different kind of uh, danger for a wrestler like Magomed Magomedov. And I mean that was really really impressive. I'm super excited for that fight. And obviously, and will most certainly be talking about that more in the future. I'm gonna have to do like a full deep dive into how that into like a. A preview for that fight. I'm super excited for that. And the rest of the Bellator card is pretty solid. Shout out Liz Carmouche. She got it done again. Uh, second round submission over Juliana Velasquez. That was really impressive. I don't think I think a lot of people thought Velasquez was going to beat her the second time, but Carmouche. I mean, really, really good job. Shut her down. Dalton Rasta looked fantastic in his unanimous decision win over Anthony Adams. And Adams looked really game. Like Adam went in. Adams went in there. He looked ready to go. And I mean, Rasta pretty much just beat him pillar to post. And he had he had Adams in a lot of trouble late in the round. He rocked him bad against the cage. Um, I'm really interested to see what Dalton Rasta's next matchup will be. Hopefully, it's someone in that Bellator middleweight top three, and he will hopefully work his way back up, to, work his way towards the shot at the title. But beyond that, it was it was a pretty tough night for the wrestlers. Uh, Kyle Crutchmer loses to Jaleel Willis in a pretty dominant performance from Willis. I mean, Crutchmer was just not able to get any takedowns going, and Willis really did a good job on his feet. Cody Law dropped a weird split decision to Chris Lencioni. I thought Law was going to get the nod in that fight, um, but I don't, it was weird. It was like, I really thought Law was going to get the win, but then Lencioni got two 30-27s, and then Law got a 29-28. It was weird. Um, but then... Pat Downey got knocked the fuck out in his second pro MMA fight. Like he got clocked, and in all honesty, it just looked pretty bad. Like I, th- it, it was, it seemed to me pretty clear right away. Downey kind of tried to exchange on the feet early in the first like five seconds, and I thought it looked pretty obvious that if he tried to do that, he was going to get knocked out if he wanted to strike. And he ended up getting a takedown, but his opponent uh, Christian Eccles was able to was able to get up from the takedown, and then shortly after that, it pretty much all went downhill. 
um, before he got clipped with a with a right hand and then nailed with an uppercut from the depths of hell that just put him out. Uh, he was a minus twenty five hundred favorite at some at at some book I believe, which is nuts. Eccles like the plus twelve hundred favorite or something. So we'll see if he's we'll see if Down he's able to bounce back. Um, if anyone out there knows anything about his wrestling career and how it ended, uh, you know they're predicting Pat Downey's next move. Not an easy thing to do. So hopefully we see him come back like focused and training hard. But um, I wouldn't say that is a certainty. We'll see what happens with that next. I'm guessing Bellator paid him pretty well, so I don't know. Um, we'll see what happens. But it was a good it was a good card for Bellator. I thought. Um, you know, Apache Mix probably the biggest star to come out of it, but Rafian Stotts is obviously a pretty big star in his own right. I think that's going to be an awesome fight. They should really promote the nuts off that fight because it's going to. I think that fight's almost certainly going to be a lot of fun, and they have a lot of big stars coming up. Like you know, Dalton Ross is a great personality. He could become a pretty big deal, and I think you know he's going to be near that. There's a lot of great matchups in that Bellator middleweight division right now. I think that could get really, really interesting. Now, luckily for the UFC, they get to try to clean the slate of this past weekend with a Sean Strickland main event. So, you know, there's definitely no chance that anything gets weird or concerning or, uh, you know, offensive. So that's going to be, I'm sure the UFC is feeling really, really good about that. Ending the ending the, the calendar year with, with a Sean Strickland main event. But there are some pretty good fights on this, this, this card. Um, David Dvorak versus Manel Kopp. Uh, a big fight is a big fight at flyweight. That's going totally under the radar. That's like a really big fight and a really fun fight. Because, I mean, Cop is, a, is, a, is as exciting as they come. And Dvorak's on a pretty good run right now. Brian Battle returns. He had that crazy knockout. Not crazy. It was just a very clean, impressive knockout in his last fight. The tough 30 winner, I think, that was the season. Saeed Nurmagomedov versus Saeed Yakub Kakramanov. Is an all is a great fight at bantamweight. Two of the hardest names to say. Uh, two guys look very similar in all honesty, uh, and two guys nobody really wants to fight. But that's going to be a really really competitive fight. Um, you don't often get these guys fighting each other. I think that I think that could be a lot of fun. By these guys, I mean like you know the the boogeymen kind of the guys with the Nurmagomedov and the Kakramanov in their name and all that fun stuff. You don't get them fighting each other very much. I think it could be a fun style matchup. Jake Matthews uh, takes on Matt Semmelsberger. Great fight at welterweight. Continuation of the Jake Matthews revenge tour. Um, I just like Jake Matthews, and I thought of that last fight against Andre Fiala was just incredibly impressive, and that's why I'm I'm hopping on the Jake Matthews revenge tour right now. Drew Dober takes on Bobby Green. I mean, that should just be a lot of fun. Bobby Green's always fun. Drew Dober, pretty much always fun. Nothing to hate about that one. That's a, that's. Um, you know, Drew Dober, I believe, is ranked. He's not. Huh. Well, then he's right on the edge. So is Bobby Green. Alex Caceres takes on Julian Arosa. I will always watch Alex Caceres, Bruce Leroy. Uh, his season of The Ultimate Fighter was one of, I think he was the second season I ever watched. I didn't watch them in order at all. I think the first season I watched was um, 17, maybe. It was Chael versus John Jones as coaches. And then after that, I believe I jumped to the, the Caceres the Bantamweight season. It was a featherweight season? Shoot. Who, but it was... It had John Dodson and TJ Dillashaw and Alex Caceres. And, uh... Uh... There was lots of guys on there. I Now I gotta... It was, a, it was a long time ago. Michael Johnson was on that season? Wow. Season 12. 
Yeah, it was GSP Koscheck. Maybe this was not. This definitely was not the season with uh, John Dodson and TJ Dillashaw, but Michael Johnson, Alex Caceres, lots of guys whose names are not not around. Very. The only other one that I think is really of um, the only other name on this season that I really remember is a uh, Nam fan, Jonathan Brookins. He fought for a while. He was on this season. Yeah, but I just, yeah, Alex Caceres, Michael Johnson, Nam fan, all guys. I This was, I believe, the second season I ever watched. If it wasn't this season, it was, just, it was one of the first ones, and so I'll always have a connection with him. But if it wasn't the second one, then the second one was the John Dodson, TJ Dillashaw season, and then maybe it was this one. I don't know. There was a summer when I was a kid that I was just watching all of these shows. I was watching seasons of The Ultimate Fighter just in a row. I just watched them all in like a week. But so I feel a certain connection with Bruce Leroy, Alex Caceres. But we've also got Armand Sarukian versus Demir Ismagulov, another banger of a fight for Sarukian, and actually Ismagulov. Ismagulov's coming off that fight with uh, Guram Kutadaladze. Um, and this is just this is another next generation lightweight showcase. I mean, like there's there's absolutely a chance that we see this one again in like four years, but there's a belt on the line. This is a crazy fight. The fact that it's between like the number nine and the number twelve ranked guy in the in the world. That's crazy. <clears throat> but it's an awesome fight. And then, of course, we've got Jared Cannonier versus Sean Strickland, two of the top middleweights in the world. Um, not really sure what's at stake here, in all honesty, but it is a big fight. Uh, you know, Sean Strickland, because of how weird he is and, like, the weird um, sort of scary and problematic aura he's going to bring with him, there's always a chance that he could end up in a title fight just because it's, it's going to get buzz. Um, so if he beats Cannoneer, I wouldn't be surprised to see him all of a sudden have some some title conversation around him. Jared Cannoneer, if he wins, I'm not sure where he goes. Not sure what happens here, but um, I'm sure we'll get some, some great clips from Sean Strickland in the uh, pre-fight media stuff. He will probably say some things that are incredibly problematic, borderline offensive, if not overtly offensive. So look forward to that. And I believe that is going to be all for me today. I feel like I only talked about like two things, maybe three things, but you know, uh, long conversations sometimes need to be had. Let me know if you think I'm wrong about anything. Please, I like conversation. I like to talk about things that when I disagree with people. And um, yeah, thank you. Thank you so much for listening. Let me know if there's anything you want me to talk about. I love you for listening. If you are out there, um, please like, subscribe. That's not that's YouTube. That, this isn't on YouTube yet. Please follow, uh, leave a review if you could. I would very, very much appreciate that on whatever platform you listen on. Yeah, we're reaching. We're we're coming to an interesting point in the uh, MMA schedule where there's going to be a lot of dead time where like there's not a lot of events going on. So. Uh, I'm, I I need some ideas for stuff to talk about. I mean, there's still going to be storylines and stuff going on, but like uh, we could have so we could really like get more open ended and just like let do some more creative things with the time. So if there's anything specific, I would love uh, you to shoot me a recommendation. Um, obviously, I don't think there's a comment section, but uh, my Twitter's in the bio. DM me. I could throw my Instagram in the bio. DM me there, any of that. Let me know what I should talk about. Like, if you want to come on the show, let me know. I mean, I want to have guests. I'll probably, I'll try to have guests probably the next several weeks because we got to have stuff, we got to have something going on. So, um, yeah, if you want to come on the show, let me know. If you want me to talk about something specific, let me know. 
Uh, I would love to do all of that. It's going to be interesting coming up. There's there's some events, but not a ton. So we're going to get creative. It's going to get fun. Uh, thank you again for listening. I hope this was not too horrible. That's not what I was trying to say. I hope you all have a fantastic day, a better evening, on whatever day you listen. Thank you again so much for listening. I love you all very much, and I hope to see you next time. Peace.